Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of December 9th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. It's a good morning to be here in the presence of the Lord and with His people, amen? In the last uh, hours of Jesus' earthly life, when this baby was some 30, 30 years old, in the closing hours before His crucifixion, he told his 12 disciples of what was to come. What he was going to be doing, where he was going to be going, and all that laid in those next 24 hours in particular, but even in the next three or four days. He, he told them everything that was going to happen. And to put it mildly, the 12 disciples, as we call them, were confused and a little disturbed by what they had heard. It wasn't the first time Jesus had told them what was going to happen, that he was going to be betrayed and crucified and whipped and eventually die he also told them he would be resurrected but all that stuff all it did was confuse him they that night as he told them that they quizzed him and they asked him questions they tried to sort it out and the gospel of john chapter 14 verse 27 after all these questions he just finally kind of puts an end to it and he says this the helper the holy spirit whom the Father will send in my place, or in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This second Sunday of Advent, We'll be looking at the peace that comes from Christ, the peace of Christmas, the peace of the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 26 in particular, be reading from the first four verses of Isaiah as we read about a peace that Jesus himself didn't introduce but was talked about even in the Old Testament through the prophets and through those who would we're here for hundreds, if not thousands of years before Christ. So Isaiah 26, the first four verses of that chapter. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls with ramparts of salvation. Open the gates that the righteous may enter. The one that remains faithful, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in, the, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this, this morning, Lord, again, as we prayed earlier, we live in a world that needs desperately your peace. Lord, we this morning need your peace, even as we sit in these chairs in this room. Lord, may we get a fresh glimpse of your work, of your salvation, and of your peace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah lives in dangerous times when these things are being written in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, all 12 tribes, once united under Saul and David and Solomon, have been splintered into two different nations. The northern 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel have formed a nation called Israel. The southern two tribes 
have gone by the name of Judah, and they are centered in the capital city of Jerusalem. And it's there that the line of David has actually been on the throne and continues to be, by the time of Isaiah, some 200 years after the time of David. But again, both nations are in trouble. They've been squabbling. They've been fighting amongst themselves. But of even greater threat, to the north of those northern ten tribes of Israel, there is another nation by the name of Assyria. It's roughly located in the modern-day nation of Syria. And the nation of Assyria was threatening the, especially the northern ten tribes, but it was, it was expanding all over the place. It was a growing world power, and it was threatening both Judah and Israel. And by the time of Isaiah, and Isaiah is writing in the late part of the 700s B.C., in the early part of the 600s B.C., when Isaiah is present, Assyria is coming against and actually will ultimately invade and essentially wipe out the nation of Israel, those northern ten tribes. That happens during Isaiah's lifetime. So by the time Isaiah is really prophesying and doing the work that God's called him to do, much of the original nation of Israel is no more. And this, much of this book is, in fact, a warning to Israel and especially to Judah, centered in Jerusalem, that they need to repent before God and return to Him, or there is disaster on the horizon. But Isaiah knows that Judah and Jerusalem will not listen. And so the first portion of the, of the book of Isaiah, much of it is warnings to repent. Much of it's warnings to, to, to be wary of God's coming judgment. It's warnings to renew the covenant and be right before God. But knowing that those things will not happen, there are also portions of Isaiah, including our passage this morning, that look at a future far away that acknowledges that the judgment of God will in fact come on Israel and the judgment of God will in fact come on Judah. But even when God's judgment comes, he says there's going to be a day when that judgment is over. There's going to be a day when the wars will cease. There's going to be a day when sin will be eradicated and there will be a day when God's peace is restored. So even though Isaiah gives them warnings of judgment and gives them warnings of disaster, he's also mixing in there hope that as bad as it may well be at some point, it's going to get better. Even earlier in chapter 25, and we didn't read this earlier, but earlier parts of chapter 25, immediately before 26, he says this in verse 6 of that chapter, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Do some of those passages sound familiar? Wiping away all the tears, death 
being no more. I couldn't read those without thinking of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, God says this, or the, the Word of God says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. He said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation 21, just the next page over, he goes on and says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That Isaiah 25 passage, that sounds a whole lot like Revelation, doesn't it? I don't think that's by accident, by the way. <laughs> I think God has given Isaiah, even in the midst of impending judgment on his people in Israel and in Judah, he's given them a glimpse of not only what their future holds, but what our future holds. And just as Israel, just as the people of God in the Old Testament would have to wait for the coming of the Messiah, they would have to wait for God's deliverance. You and I find ourselves this morning waiting for God to return. We're waiting for the events of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're waiting for the new city to come down upon the mount. And you and I, we're waiting for those days when there's no more tears and there's no more grief and there's no more death. When in fact, peace reigns. But you and I know that as of yet, those days have not arrived. Advent, as we talked about last week, these four Sundays before Christmas Day, are a time of waiting and preparation. They were they are there to mark how Israel waited for the coming of the Christ, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. Just as this morning, you and I are waiting for His return. Waiting is not easy to do. Waiting is hard because you know that something's coming, but it's just not here yet. One of the memories I have of Christmas as a kid is that every Christmas Eve we went up to my grandparents' house and they lived in Pea Ridge, Arkansas, up there on the Missouri State Line. And we'd spend the night and, you know, it's, it's amazing the things you remember. They, they had a, a love seat sized hide a bed in the back bedroom. So guess who got to sleep on the, on the hide a bed? Now, have y'all, have y'all slept on hide a beds? Are those known for their great comfort? No. What they're known for is that bar right in the middle somewhere that you can never get comfortable, right? So, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, kids aren't exactly sleeping well on Christmas Eve anyway, right? Because they're anticipating the next day. You put a bar in the middle of your back, and yet what I remember is um, 
you know, generally my, my grandma got up pretty early and I remember the smell and the sound of bacon sizzling. Y'all know that sound and that smell, right? Bacon sizzling. And the, the smell of bacon kind of wafts its way through the house and coffee. I didn't drink coffee. I, you could smell the coffee and you could hear them all kind of muttering in the quiet Christmas morning in the kitchen down the hall. And that stuff made you, I mean, you knew you weren't supposed to get up yet, so you had to sit there, I had to sit there and wait, smelling the bacon going, because, you, you know, smells are really good. They, they make you anticipate things, right? Oh, that's going to be good. Here, a couple hours, when we eat that stuff. It's the waiting, the anticipation. And we talked about that last week. We talked about the idea of hope. But what we're waiting for is peace. And in Isaiah 26, we have this peace. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 26, in that day. So Isaiah is pointing to a future day. He's he's saying there will be a day, and it's coming. And we don't know when it's coming, but someday. And in that day, when it arrives, there's going to be a song sung. There's going to be singing in that day. So the first thing we want to notice this morning is that the peace that we're talking about, the peace he's talking about in Isaiah 26, is a peace that's founded and is based upon something that we know will happen in the future. It's founded in the future. The whole context of this part of Isaiah is on something that is going to happen, but it hasn't arrived yet. It's all there to provide peace because the future is known. By the way, peace for us relies, it's founded upon this idea that our future is in fact settled. It's it's sure. It's known. If you're unsure about what the future holds, if you're not sure about what tomorrow holds, about what's going to happen to you, then you will not know peace today. Now you're saying, well, how in the world can we know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or the next day. Well, in some ways, we don't. I don't know what events will transpire this evening necessarily. I don't know what Monday necessarily holds. I don't necessarily know what the year 2019 holds for me in particular as we live our lives. But I do know the end. I do know the future in this sense, that there will be a day when as one of God's children, I will have a chance to see Him face to face Death no longer an issue, grief no longer an issue, sorrow no longer an issue, and I will be at perfect peace. I know what the future holds. And knowing that, knowing the future, provides peace today. Because it settles some things. There have been multiple surveys done through the years about the things that cause us to worry, that one real, a real enemy of peace, if you will, worry is. And so, in no particular order, I looked at all these different surveys. Here are what people in the United States find themselves worried about. See if any of these sound familiar. Money. Any of you find yourself worried occasionally about whether or not you'll have enough money? Or is that just me? No, I, we worry about money, don't we? Will we have enough money to do this? Will we have enough money to do that? 
Will we have enough money to retire? What's our future look like financially? And if you don't worry about it, if you watch TV or listen to the radio enough, they'll put commercials on their designs to make you worry about your future. I, I, one of the ones I find annoying is that there's a symbol, I think it's called, I think they're called Voya. They have these little paper origami things, squirrels. And the whole point of the commercial is to make you worried. Because they can provide peace. No, they can't. Paper squirrels can't provide peace. I'm sorry. We're worried about our money, our future. Maybe we're worried about the security of our jobs. Maybe we're worried about our relationships. Where are the relationships going? Do I have relationships? I'm worried about those things. I may be worried about my health. I may be worried about getting older. I may be worried about death or the death of another. Maybe I'm worried about grief. I thought, interesting, that they, this, a lot of these surveys said that the time of day, there's actually a time of day that we worry more than any others. You know what, know what the time of day is that we, we tend to worry? 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Y'all know that, right? Because what time is it? You know, it's, 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 it's 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, you're trying to get to sleep, and what happens? All this stuff was running through your head about the next day or the next day or I thought that was kind of interesting. 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Are, are the highest times of worry. We worry. We fret. We are concerned about what we don't know. All of these have at their core an unease, an unknown future. And they leave us feeling like we're unprepared or unable to meet what might happen the next day or the day after or the day after that. And we feel like we're not ready. We're unprepared. Something is not whole there's something missing, and so we are worried. And yet, chapter 26 of Isaiah says this, there will be a day when there will be none of that. And why is God telling us this in Isaiah chapter 26? Because He wants us here, December 2018, to know that we have a set future. He wants us to, when those worries begin to happen at 9 o'clock at night or at 10 o'clock at night or at midnight, He wants us to know that, okay, maybe you don't know whether you have enough money to do what you want to do 10 years from now, but I will tell you this, God says, what's really important is this, that you have an eternity secured. That your future can be known to a degree. And here's what, that there are not going to be any, quote, missing pieces. And when that day arrives, there will be singing. One reason we sing is because, well, often the Bible tells us over and over and over again to, in fact, sing. doesn't say sing well. doesn't say sing on key. It just says sing. And a lot of times it says sing loud. Now, I know some of you are going, you don't want me to sing loud. Yeah, I know. But the Bible says sing loud a whole lot. I have yet to see a scripture where it says, sing in a whisper. It says sing, it says sing loud. We sing because the Bible tells us that we also sing because there will be a day when there is singing. And we, we sing as a way of anticipating 
the day that is yet to come. We have a strong city. This is the song. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for salvation. This song is talking about there will be a day that the very structure of the city is not made up of brick or mortar or sheetrock or concrete. The walls themselves are made up of salvation. God's salvation. In other words, the things that God has done through Christ, that's what builds the walls. Okay, what's that mean? I don't know what that means. I know it's a little abstract. I'm not sure I know what that wall looks like either. I just know this, that the future holds. And look at this, that the ramparts are for security or for salvation. We know this, and there's this picture of this ancient city, and the walls of a city in those ancient days would have been built for security, to keep out an invader. These walls surrounding the city, whether it be the ancient city of Jericho, for example, would have had these wide, sometimes 10, 20 foot wide walls on top of it. You could get all kinds of armaments and soldiers. And so these guys would gather up on the top, some invading armies coming up against that wall, and they just have no chance because the walls are what is defending and keeping the people safe. And what God says to us this, there will be a day when you're not relying upon concrete and rock and asphalt to keep you safe. What you're doing is that the activity of God in Christ, His salvation, is what protects you. That's what you rely upon. So in this future, God's salvation, His work through Christ to deliver us from sin, that's what protects us. That's what keeps us safe. Even now, one of the names for Satan in the Scriptures is, is the accuser. And there is in some... And you know, the Bible gives us all different kinds of, of word pictures, if you will, of, of how salvation works and of what God's doing and behind the scenes spiritually. One of those pictures is kind of like a courtroom. And in this giant courtroom, there is God the Father who is the judge, and there is God the Son who is you and I's attorney. He's our defender. And then there is Satan. And Satan is before God the Father saying to him, have you looked at Brett? And God says, yeah, I know who you're talking about. And Satan says, Brett is a scumbag. He's a scoundrel. Do you know how his thoughts are like? Do you know how selfish he's been? Do you know all the stuff he's done wrong? God, this man Brett deserves nothing but fire and hell and separation. He's earned it. And then before Satan can finish his sentence, Jesus stands up and says, I object. And says, everything that Satan has accused him of is gone. Look at him again, Father, because all you will see is my righteousness. Satan, sit down and shut up. I added that part. <laughs> Even now, we have one who would accuse us. And I have no defense. I cannot stand up to Satan and say anything because he's absolutely right in this sense. I am, in fact, a sinner. But I have one, a defender, whose salvation protects me from the accusations and the insults and the daggers of Satan, and he protects me inside the walls of his salvation. And I am, as a result, fearless. Because there is nothing 
that Satan can do about me. When the scriptures say, what can come against us, that's what it's talking about. So the walls, the fortifications of this eternal city where we'll be singing are made and constructed out of the fact that Christ defends us and protects us from the attacks of Satan. We have salvation. So peace, the peace of Christmas, the peace of Christ, we light this candle this morning to represent peace. That peace begins and is founded upon a future that is known. I know that no matter what Satan does, I know that no matter what comes against me, I know that whatever, whatever my finances might look at tomorrow, whatever job I may or may not have next week, I know that whoever's president, whoever's not president, whatever nations are ruling the earth, that no matter what's going on, my future is in fact secure. And whether I have, uh, whether I'm a believer in China at threat of being killed for my faith or that I live in a relative comfort that we do here in the United States, either way, my salvation is secure, my future is secure, and I am at peace. What can they do to take this away? The answer is nothing. So I can be at peace because I have a secure future. It's founded upon the future. It's not just founded upon the future, though. It's founded upon something else. Look at verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. Our peace is not only founded in the future, it's founded in faith. A faith in Christ. A faith in our Lord. He says there, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. What does that word steadfast mean? It means to lay uh, to, to, lay, to lay actually comes from a word that means to lay your head down upon something. The idea is that you're relying or resting your weight, your head, your life upon something else. So he says the idea of being steadfast in mind is that you have taken your mind, you've taken your heart, you've taken that core of who you are, and you have rested it upon another. It's carrying the weight. Not you, it's carrying all the weight. And so he says, the steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace because where is he laying down? Where is he trusting the weight of his life? In the Lord. Now, this says that the steadfast of mind, and I understand the word mind, um, mind, the mind, the heart, the core of who we are, these words are somewhat interchangeable in all of, all of Scripture. But this type of reliance, to be steadfast, to have everything I am resting upon Him, means a couple of things. One, there are places in the Scripture that talk about what it might mean to be, or what it means to be a double-minded individual. You may have heard that phrase sometimes in Bible study, the idea of what it means to be double-minded. Well, what's he talking about when he's double-minded? I want to talk to you, let me take you to the book of James, near the end of the New Testament, following the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, and then James, chapter uh, one. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the Word of God says this, speaking of the man of God. He must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's, a, he's being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does it mean to be double-minded? It means that I'm constantly 
changing what I'm looking at. It means I'm constantly changing what I'm trusting. It means that today I see this, I go, well, I should do this to be okay. And it means the next day I go, well, wait a minute, maybe I should do this to be okay. And I keep going back and forth between what I'm supposed to do. I keep going back and forth between what is important. You know, whether you are managing a company or a business or whether you're a coach in sports, really in any, any, any part of life, whatever you're trying to be successful in, You've got to know where you're going and how you want to get there. Right? You know, the best coaches are the ones that know, how to, they, 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 they know what they're going to do to get there. They, they put their plan together. They don't, they don't get to game day and try five different game plans. If you do everything at once, you don't do any of it any, any good. They, they, they pick one game plan and say, this is what we're going to do. The double-minded man is someone who, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is someone who can't figure out what they're really trusting. They can't figure out where they're really relying, what they're, what they're really relying on. They, they move from thing to thing. Maybe today it's their money. Maybe it's today it's their health. Maybe the next day it's God. Then the next day it's something else. And they just move from one thing to the next. Think if you want a picture in your mind, think of Peter walking on the water. They're in the storm. Jesus, uh, Peter, the disciples, they're in the boat. They have this massive storm coming up. Jesus is not in the boat with them this particular time. And as the disciples who are in a state of fear and panic look out upon the waves, they see someone walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. They're freaked out. And as he gets closer, they realize that it looks like Jesus. So they call out. He answers. Peter goes, is that you? He says, yeah, it's me. Come on over. You know, James is Johnny over there going, come on over. And Peter goes, Okay. <laughs> And Peter just jumps over the boat. And before I think even Peter realizes what's going on, he's walking on the water towards Jesus. And then at some point, a handful of steps into it, Peter's going, this is really cool. What, what am I doing? And he's no longer looking at Christ. The Bible says he's now looking at the water. He's looking at the waves. He's looking at the boat and going, oh, this is not, this is not, What? And the moment he's no longer looking at Christ, he's no, longer, he's no longer relying on Christ, he begins, of course, to sink. That's the double-minded man. You and I may one day find ourselves relying upon Christ, but the next day we may find ourselves relying upon ourselves or upon our jobs. or you know, All these things we talked about people worrying about earlier, you know why we worry about those things? Because we rely upon those things. Our trust is in those things. Our trust is in our IRA. Our trust is in our retirement account. Our trust is in our relationships. Our trust is in our health. Our trust is in any number of things, and it's not always in God. Those other things can be removed. So if I'm relying upon my bank account or my job or my relationships to feel at peace, to be secure, all of those things can be removed. All of those things can be gone in an instant. No wonder I would worry. So he says, those who are steadfast in mind, who are not double-minded, who are doing nothing but looking at their master Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, they are the ones who have peace. Most people fail to find peace because most people are looking for it in the wrong place. Peace is not found in our circumstances. It's not found in other 
uh, another in situations out there. The lack of peace is not because some nation threatens to invade us or because the laws of our nation become unfriendly to us. Those don't cause lack of peace. Peace does not come from out there. Peace comes from the presence of God and the salvation of God within us. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Paul says, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Know what that means? It doesn't mean, it means that if you're in jail for the cause of Christ, it means if you're traveling to a part of the world that's dangerous for the cause of Christ, it means that if you're worshiping in an illegal church in Iran, it means that if you're worshiping in the United States in relative comfort, it doesn't matter where you are. The source of your peace is not out there. It's Christ working in here. The steadfast of mind. The mind, the heart, is a battleground. Over and over and over again, the Scriptures talk about how we have to engage in a battle over our hearts, a battle over our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, that's the, worldly world, the, the, the world around us, though we walk in flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, you and I, as we are engaged, we're, first of all, we are engaged in a battle. Satan attacks us on how we think and what we value and how we process information. He knows that you and I, as rebels against God's will, with a fallen sin human nature, that our thoughts are corrupted. You and I, we can't trust ourselves. Because every thought we have is potentially corrupted by sin. You and I's ability to understand the truth, to process information correctly, to see the world as it really is, all of those things have been compromised. Because Satan has attacked us and because we have fallen into sin so in many ways we can't trust our own judgments so what we have to do instead is rely upon the faithful true words of god says i can't trust my own judgment and i don't always have the ability to see things accurately i have to depend upon his eyes his understanding his wisdom and to know what the truth is of a situation that's why i need the word why I need his, the activity of His Spirit. The Bible, throughout the course of the Scriptures, from one end to the other, describe our minds, our hearts, in the following way. It says that we are confused in Deuteronomy. It says that we are anxious and closed to God in Job. It says that we are evil and restless in Ecclesiastes. It says that we are rash in our thoughts and even deluded in Leviticus and Isaiah. It says that we are troubled. It says that we have a depraved mind in first timothy we have a sinful mind in romans we have oh this is great we have a dull mind according to second corinthians we have a blinded mind according to second corinthians and a corrupt mind in second timothy jeremiah 17 9 says this the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it in other words you and i have an amazing ability to lie to ourselves and buy the lie 
Every single one of us thinks that we're better than we are. Someone else does something wrong, and we're quick to pounce. We do something wrong, well, there's a reason. There's an explanation. There's an excuse. That's a lie. Some of us think that we're better. Well, I don't have those problems. I don't have that problem. I've never found myself there. I've never found myself there. There are people who are worse off than I am. Well, maybe. But here's the truth. We're all in the exact same desperate situation because of our sin before God. Not one of us is better off than the other. So there's a battle for the mind. And that battle is won for us when we focus upon Christ. We look at Him and our, our lives are steadfastly reliant upon Him and His Word. The steadfast of mind will be kept in perfect peace. That word peace it has this idea of not just a lack of conflict, it really has this idea. It's, it's the word shalom. In fact, he even goes so far in verse 3 to say perfect peace. What's, what's actually happening is it's a double shalom. If you, read, if you read that in Hebrew, you would say, Lord, we'll keep him in a shalom, shalom. Perfect peace, double peace. And the idea is this. The idea behind shalom is that there is a, a wholeness, a completeness, a wellness. In other words, there's no missing pieces. There's nothing out there that's worrying you. There's nothing out there that's missing that has to be made up for. Everything is whole. Everything is is complete. Everything is as it should be. That's the idea of peace. So the steadfast of mind will be kept in double shalom. Those who have relied upon and focused upon and given the weight of their lives to rest upon the work of Christ will have perfect wholeness. Perfect peace, perfect wellness. We will be as God intended. And when that process is completed, on that day, there will be a song. <laughs> is what he says in Isaiah chapter 26. Christ is the peace of God. So when the angels sing, glory to God, peace on earth. This is the peace to which they're referring, the peace to which Isaiah is talking about us singing. When Jesus says, my peace, when he told the disciples, my peace I give to you, this is what he's talking about. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to that which also you are called in one body and be thankful. In Acts, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. Romans 1 Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 For He is our Peace, speaking of Christ. This child that was born in a manger who would one day, as an adult man, be crucified, he is our peace. He is our salvation. 
He is the one that protects us from the accusations of Satan. He is the one who makes us whole and complete and well before God. He is our peace. And that peace is founded upon a known future and faith in Christ. That's the peace that we sing about. It's the peace that we are promised.